Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, bits from Romans chapter 5, 6, and on into chapter 8. To say Jesus is Savior seems a fairly tame sort of a thing uh, to, uh, to say, but over history, it has been a deadly thing uh, to admit. Uh, Christians were threatened uh, to be burned alive or fed to the lions if they would say Jesus was Savior. Um, in about AD 160, uh, a bishop of a place called Smyrna in Turkey, a man called Polycarp, was uh, taken uh, to the arena um, before the governor, and he was uh, challenged to deny Jesus Christ. Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my Savior? You see, Savior was a title that the Roman uh, Caesars and even the Greek rulers had stolen or appropriated. Same with Lord. And for some of the Roman uh, Caesars, they had um, taken the title Son of God as well. So for a Christian to say, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, was considered treason. Roman citizens had to uh, give their allegiance to Caesar. He was to be hailed as Lord and trusted as Savior. And then you've got these, these nobodies scattered throughout uh, the Middle East who would come and say, no, 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 I can't say that. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. For them, it was a matter of life and death. And it still is. It still is a matter of eternal significance because to know Jesus as our Savior brings eternal life, and to not know Him as Savior, to reject Him as Savior, brings an eternal death. So that's what we want to think about this morning. Uh, to think about it for several reasons. One, so that those of us who have Jesus as our Savior in, appreciate the richness and the wonder of that. And if there are those here this morning who do not yet have Christ as their Savior, that you can come to see that this is something that you need, something that is essential, and something that is rich. Unfortunately, it's one of those phrases that can become a bit irksome. You get a certain type of person who challenges people and says, are you born again? Or are you saved? And televangelists who go on about being born again and being saved and then uh, live lives that um, are rolling in wealth and uh, their financial affairs are somewhat dubious, give bad press to these beautiful terms that come from the Bible. And I want us to see that they are beautiful. A theological professor was once asked by a rather keen new Christian, are you saved? The man gave this answer. He said, I was saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. because he understood the richness of what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved. In 1 Corinthians, uh, he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, present, it is the power of God. 
And then we read from Romans 5 and verse 9, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, the coming judgment through Him? So, the theological professor was right. There's three parts, three sides to this fantastic description of Jesus as Savior, and we want to consider them uh, this morning. First of all, Jesus saves from the penalty of sin. He saves from the penalty of sin. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we need peace with God? Well, in the first three chapters, Paul has been accumulating evidence that we are not at peace with God, that we are guilty. He makes the rather obvious statement that the wicked are guilty. Chapter 1, well, that figures. If you have no time for God and you defy God, yes, you're going to be guilty. Chapter 2, he moves into more surprising territory. You can be really good, but that's not enough. You're not able to be good enough for God. Then he moves to another even more surprising category in chapter 2, that you can be really religious and still be guilty. And then he comes to the conclusion in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. And actually, he was quoting from Psalm 53 that we've just sung, as we, that we've just arrived at as we went in our journey through the Psalms this morning. He quotes from that same passage. And then he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if you're really bad, really good, really religious, we're all falling short. We're all not at peace with God. Sin isn't so much just doing bad stuff. Sin is not just denying God's existence. It's denying His relevance. Saying, well, I don't really need Him. Or saying, well, if I need Him, I'll call Him. And sin is everything from failing to hit the target to deliberately defying God. And we're all guilty. That moment in the news a few weeks ago where uh, there were 11 million documents from uh, Panama and from off, an offshore banking, or of a law firm that managed offshore banking, 11 million documents were leaked. And there was something tragically comical about it, as on the first day there were a lot of politicians uh, scrambling about um, trying to defend themselves. And then on the next day, uh, it was celebrities were scrambling about. And then the next day, it, it was sports stars. They'd been squirreling away money in these offshore accounts, trying to hide uh, their wealth from the taxman. And it was just all coming to light. Eleven million documents. Just imagine being uh, in one of those homes, uh, and your name hasn't yet come to light. Uh, the news is broken on Monday. It's now Tuesday, and your phone rings, and you don't recognize the number. Your heart starts to race. They go, oh, no, I've been found out. Um, and you, you answer the phone, and it's just somebody wanting to sell you double glazing. And then the phone rings later on, and your heart races again. You're, you're living in fear. Am I going to be caught out here? Am I going to be found out? 
for hiding this money away. And there's this whole paper trail. There's something in that in miniature of what the day of judgment is going to be like when we will find everything brought to light. Jesus says that we will have to give an account on that day of every empty word that we've spoken. In Luke 8, he says that there's nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. You know, those guys thought that they had everything hidden in uh, their offshore banking. Eleven million documents. It's incredible. But it's pales into insignificance compared with what is spoken about here in Revelation 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 2.7 was it trillion uh, terabytes of data. Maybe it was 2.7 terabytes of data, an incredible amount of data in the Panama Papers. Tiny compared with the record-keeping of a holy God. And we will be found guilty. Paul tells us that even the motivations of our hearts will be exposed. And all this matters because God is holy, and He is righteously angry at all that we've done against Him, against Him and without Him, where we think that we can live in God's world and take God's air and breathe and live without Him. We're squatters. This is our problem. We're guilty. And we need someone to rescue us. And then Romans 5 tells us the wonderful news. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Where do you find someone to die for you? How hard is that? Imagine trying to find somebody who would die for you. Imagine trying to find someone who would die for you before God, who would say, look, I'll take the blame for you. See, that's impossible to find someone because everybody's got their own blame that they have to bear before God. And so somebody can't say to you, I'll take yours and I'll die for you because God says to that person, no, you need to die for your own sin. You need to face your own punishment. You can't take theirs. So where do you find someone who doesn't have to die, but who's willing to die, who doesn't have any guilt of their own, who can take your place? Where do you find a Savior like that? He finds us. Magnificently, He finds us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates, this is verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And His death isn't just… His death does something. His death isn't just an example of love or self-sacrifice that we are to look at and be moved by. His death is purposeful. Isaiah unpacks it. And the wonders in the pronouns, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. He was pierced. He was crushed. Where do you get a Savior who would do that for you? If you're a Christian this morning, does that not amaze you? 
Here, here's a very poor illustration, which is nonetheless amazing. In 2006, an Australian girl, Kim Deere, was in America preparing for her first skydive. On, on camera, she points to her instructor and says, this is the man that's going to save my life. She means that he's going to be at the tandem parachute. She's going to be strapped to him and he's going to, they're going to skydive and he's going to pull the cord and the parachute will go. That's not what happened. Maybe you've heard the story. The plane takes off. The engine fails. It goes into a nosedive. And in the 16 seconds it takes for the plane to fall, the instructor, a man called, I think, Richard Cook, turned to Kim Deere and said to her what was going to happen. He unpacked it for her and he said to her to be calm and to listen to what he's saying. He clipped his harness onto hers. He wrapped his arms round her. Her head was resting his shoulder. He, he trapped her head with his own head against, her shoulder to, against his shoulder to stop it flopping around. He said, as the plane is about to hit the ground, make sure you're on top so that I take the force of the impact. And as the plane was spiraling towards the ground, it clipped a, a power line and spun over. And Kim Deere said she felt uh, Mr. Cook twisting under her to make sure that he got his body on the underside. When the plane hit the ground, he was crushed, and she survived. He took, as her father said, the full force of the impact. You get that. Aren't you amazed that somebody would do that for a stranger? How much more amazing that while we were yet sinners, our Savior was crushed by the wrath of God for you and for me. Isn't that incredible? That's what it is to have Jesus pay the price for our sin. He pays the penalty that our sin deserves. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. I remember hearing of uh, a Muslim man and a Christian man discussing the differences between their religion. And the Muslim man summed it up this way. He said, you know, the key difference is you have a Savior in your faith and we don't. Christianity has a Savior. And all you need to do for Him to be your Savior is to turn from doing things your way, to turn from your sin and yourself, and to turn to Him and to trust Him. Ask Him to take all of that penalty and to pay for it. And trust that when He says it is finished, that it is. And if you've done that, rest in it. Paul says over the page in Romans chapter 8, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sin. Secondly, Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. He's not done yet because sin Okay, if Jesus has forgiven us for the, all our past, present, and future sins, why not just keep on sinning? 
and we can keep on being forgiven. Well, that's what Paul anticipates in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? By no means. Because Paul grasps that sin isn't simply something that makes us guilty. Sin is like a toxic poison running through our heart and our soul that is ruining us, and that's what we need rescued from. Not just the guilt, not just the penalty, but the actual toxin of sin in our heart and soul. And he says, Jesus has come to save us. And in Romans chapter 6, he unpacks some of that. He wants us to see, verse 6, that sin, um, we're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 6. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin, and we died with Christ. Jesus smashed the power of sin and death over us. It's as if he's deprogrammed the controller. I got a quadcopter for my birthday, a little remote control helicopter thing, and uh, I took it up on its first flight um, on what I thought was a calm evening. Took it up, and I'm controlling it with the remote control, and up it goes, and it's hovering nicely, and it hovers higher. And then there must have been a current, because it took off, and off it went, and went, and went, as free as a bird. And I'm pressing all the buttons, and I'm running after it, and I'm pressing, and it's not responding. It won't, it won't come back. The, the power of the, the wind was too strong for it. It took it away. It, it broke the power of the controller over it. And for the Christian, when we stay close to Jesus, it is, as it were, like being in that current of the wind. It breaks the power. Christ has broken the power of our old controller of sin and Satan and temptation over us. Ah, but our problem is that unlike the quadcopter, we have got habits. Well, I suppose like the quadcopter, we have a built-in receiver uh, that, that wants to tune in to the old habits. And our controller, our old master, comes after us, and he tempts us, and he won't let us go. But Jesus works with us to free us from the power of sin. And he deals with our actions, our habits, our words. He sets out to change us. Jesus isn't a doormat to wipe our feet on, to wipe our sin off on. He's a a Savior who saves us, not just from the penalty of sin, but the ongoing power of sin. That's important, because if we've no interest in following Jesus, if we've no interest in being godly, if we've no interest in shaking off the power of sin, then we can have no confidence that Jesus is our Savior and that He has dealt with the penalty of sin, because in the people He deals with the penalty of their sin, He also is working in them to deal with the the power of sin in their lives. And so there are people who are quite happy to say, oh yes, Jesus is my Savior, but you see no evidence in their lives that they follow Him. They're not struggling against their temptations. They're not struggling uh, to grow in godliness. There's none of the the language of Romans 6 or 7 or even 8, those chapters that in places speak of putting sin to death 
of do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Here's the problem. If Jesus isn't saving you now from the power of sin, He isn't your Savior from the penalty of sin. Romans 6 puts it clearly. Jesus saves us, verse uh, 4 and 5, He says, that we too may live a new life. That we too may live a new life. The end of verse 4. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, this isn't instant. Forgiveness is instant. Being free from the penalty of sin is instant. Freedom from the power of sin is a lifelong project in which Jesus is engaged by sending His Holy Spirit into our lives. And sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. But we're wanting to go forward. And Jesus is working with us in this. Here is good news if you've been struggling. Sin shall not be your master. That's the promise. doesn't mean you defeat sin and temptation, pride, your attitudes that you struggle with instantly. But it does mean that there is going to be growth. That's what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Press it into every corner of your lives. Before we move on to the third point, look very quickly and briefly at verse, verses 11, 12, and 13. Paul gives three helps here. Verse 11, his helpful word is, count yourselves dead to sin, or reckon, reckon yourself dead to sin. Remind yourself, I don't have to do this. Sin isn't stronger than the Holy Spirit, than the power of Jesus working in me. I don't have to give in. It's not inevitable. Ah, but you might say, but I want to do it. I like my own particular personal shortcomings, my own pity parties, my own pride, my own sins that, that I like. I like them. Well, Paul says, verse 13, refuse. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it refuse. Verse 13, of chapter 8, he calls us to put to death. It's like a step beyond refusal. It's beat the living daylights out of it. He calls us to bloody hand-to-hand combat with our temptations to fight. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, he says. Don't let it. Don't let it reign in your eyes and what you look at, whether it's something like pornography or whether it's with jealousy or envy. Don't let it rain in your eyes. Don't let it rain in your tongues with the words you use. Don't let it rain in your feet in the places you go. Don't let it rain in your hands, what you use your hands for, where you surf on the internet. Do not let sin rain in your minds, your attitudes to people, envy, pride, anger. Do not let sin rain in your hearts, putting God subtly in a second place something else being more important to you than him. Refuse, Paul says, verse 12. Verse 13, he tells us to recommit 
Instead of using ourselves for things that are wrong, give ourselves to serving God. Put off sin. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. Put off doing things what we want to do and put on serving God. Jesus is saving us from the present or from the power of sin. Fantastic. And then thirdly, finally, Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. I don't know what your idea of heaven is. Certainly not sitting around in clouds playing a harp, although Mary may well be playing a harp because she's extremely good at it. Um, But Heaven isn't those stereotypical pictures that we have. It's a new heavens, it's a new earth, and it's going to be spectacularly glorious. It's going to be earthy in all its splendor. You think of all the places you haven't been to and you would like to see heaven, we will get to see them in the new heavens, the new earth. But better than all of that, there will be no more sin. Our Savior will come back and take us to be with Him and He will make everything new, and we will be free from the experience of sin around us. The experience of sin around us, what we've been singing of in Psalm 62 and Psalm 53. We look around us and we see people engaged in human trafficking, in exploiting the poor, in slaughtering the innocent in villages in Syria, in the drug trade in Colombia. We see the inner city gang warfare in Dublin, and we see all of the wickedness around us, and our hearts cry out, make it stop. Our Savior is coming, and He will make it stop, and it will never be seen again. The experience of sin around us, the impact or the consequence of sin around us. Not just sin being committed, but the the consequences of sin coming into the world. You switch on your televisions again, and there's an earthquake in Japan. There's famine in uh, the Horn of, of Africa. There's tsunamis. There's sickness in your next door neighbor. There's cancer. You see the consequences of Adam's fall And you think, is there nothing that can stop this? Our Savior is coming. And He will put an end to it, to the very presence of sin. There's the consequences of the fall that we experience in our own lives, our own sickness, our own broken bodies that need knee replacement surgery, our own back problems where our bones are starting to crumble, our problems with hearts, uh, with eyesight, our problems just with growing old, our problems with the consequences of things that perhaps we did that were sinful that have had impact on our well-being, whether it's psychological or emotional or spiritual or physical. Is there anybody that can turn back the clock and make us young again. We have a Savior who's coming to save us from the consequences of sin in our own lives. 
and they experience of sin as well in our own lives. We wrestle, we struggle. Paul, Paul in Romans 7 says, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's saying, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will rescue me? Is there anybody that can rescue me? Do you know that experience? You know what you should be doing, and you find I'm not doing it. Even as a Christian, I'm not doing it. And the power of sin should be broken, but I keep falling into this trap. The day is coming. And the Savior will come, and His people will be free forever from the experience of sin, from the, from the consequences of sin in their own lives, from the experience of sin around them, from the consequences of Adam's fall all around them. Everything will be made new, and there will be no more sin. Romans 8, that's why we read, we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul has spoken about creation groaning, longing, and waiting to be made new. It's waiting for that moment when we will be made new, and it will be made new, and there will be no more sin. Philippians 3.8, Paul, the Roman citizen, writing to Roman citizens who perhaps were going to find themselves facing a test of citizenship, would they acknowledge Caesar as their Lord and their Savior? And they would say, no, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from where we eagerly await a Savior. He's coming. He's coming for His people. And what hope this gives us. It means that Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins. It means He doesn't just save us from the power of sin. It means He saves us as well from, as it were, every broken dream and every lost opportunity and every sacrifice that you've made to put Christ first. You have an eternity ahead of you where He will repay a thousandfold And He saves you also from everything that has gone wrong, all the, the lost opportunities that were missed because of bad decisions, because of sinful actions, because of accident, because of hurt, because of illness. We will have new lives to live for all eternity, unmarred by anything. Best of all, we will be with our Savior. Here is hope. This life, if Christ is your Savior, is where all our sadness will be. Our certain hope is that no matter what happens here, we have an eternity stretching ahead of us filled with joy and opportunity. We eagerly await a Savior from there, Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. This is what it is to have Jesus as your Savior. He takes the punishment, pays the price. He's working in you now to save you from the power of sin. It's, it's tentacle-like grasp on your soul. He's, he's freeing you from it, and He's going to free you from it. And what a glory that will be when everything will be made new in your your bodies will be running like a finely tuned engine, like you've never 
lived before. Your mind will be comprehending and computing at speeds that you've never been able to imagine before. Your heart will be thrilled with delight at who God is and what He's done in ways that would make even your happiest moment here seem like a moment of sorrow. That's what it is to have Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you don't yet have Jesus as your Savior. Let me urge you to come to Him. Where else are you going to find someone who will pay for you, who will lay down their life for you? Where else will you find someone who has conquered death for you? He's not, as we thought with the children, merely a good example. He's not merely a good teacher. He's a Savior. You need Him to be your Savior. And if He is your Savior, respond with thankfulness that He's paid the price. Respond with determination to work with Him in this fight against the toxin of sin and live in this world with hope because we await a Savior from our country where our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, such a simple phrase, Jesus saves, and yet it sums up a wealth of extraordinary truth. Help us to revel in it. Help us to enjoy the fact that He saves us in such a multifaceted way. We grasp that sin is such a monstrosity that it takes a, a salvation that is so colossal to deal with it. And we thank You that Jesus is that Savior. And we thank You that He died on the cross so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin. We thank You that He rose again to walk with us through His Spirit to enable us to be free from the power of sin, no longer slaves to sin. Help us to walk with determination with Him, to keep in step with His Holy Spirit. And Father, help us to be a people who in this, the downward spiral that this world seems to be on will look with hope and look with hope in, in such a way that will inspire other people amidst the brokenness to lift their eyes, to look to the Savior who is coming back to make everything new. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.